I went deep in on the rabbit hole. How do you write a better book? My fear was invaluable in writing a book that is now done very well. It's made an impact. It's been endorsed by people like Jack Canfield, Dalai Lama, many other people, Seth Godin. And the point is to say it's because I was scared of writing a bad book, I wrote a good book. I wrote a better book. That one now I'm proud of. So engage the fear, assess the fear, understand the fear, and then prepare for the fear. One of my many mantras is fear propels you to prepare. When you engage it, you can use it as a source. Hello, everyone. It's Jordan Boxer, your host of Leaders in Sport, a podcast brought to you by Designs for Sport, which is an industry-leading supplement company with all NSF for Sport supplements and education gear to help elevate the industry and support fit pros. Hello, everyone. It's Jordan Boxer here with another episode of Leaders in Sport. I want to welcome you all back. And today I am met with Akshay. Um, you're a lot different than the other guests we've had on here, and I'm really excited to have this conversation. So from everything I know about you, you are a ex-Marine. You're an author. You wrote a book called Fearvana. Mm-hmm. You've gone to like the depths of spirituality in a way that I'm actually excited to get on in, in here. And you get really comfortable with pushing past this like idea of fear, and you throw yourself in these crazy situations. Uh, you have one upcoming where you're going to be doing what exactly? Crossing? I will be spending 110 days dragging a 400-pound sled for 1,700 miles completely alone from coast to coast across the entire continent of Antarctica. Temperatures as low as minus 40 degrees and below. Okay, so you're an extrovert then. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Uh, okay, so um, yeah, I there are so many ways to take this conversation, and I'm trying to figure the best place to start. So I think for people who, because I know a bit of your backstory, how do we go from, where were you born? I was born in India. You're born in India, Mm -hmm. then you came to the US. Moved to the US at 13. Okay, so how do we go from you being born in India to becoming a Marine, now dragging a sled countless miles by yourself in the middle of Antarctica? Got you. So when I moved to the US, after I was in India, Singapore, then moved, uh, moved to the US at 13, and soon after that, around 15 or 16, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol. I mean, very self-destructive. I used to cut these scars on my arm, cutting myself, burning myself, lost two friends to addiction, was heading down that path myself until I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. You ever okay. seen it? Uh, yes. That's one where the first scene's like a bomb, right? That they disarm the bomb? Is that Black Hawk Down? No, I think that's like that EOD one. Black Hawk Down is a war movie based on a true story in Somalia. No, no, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. That movie, I mean, it was the trigger that changed my life. Okay. Watching that movie, especially there's this scene where these two Delta snipers, they volunteer to go on the ground to set up a defensive perimeter, knowing they have no idea when reinforcements are going to arrive, knowing that hundreds of armed enemy personnel are coming their way, but they volunteer to go down in order to, in order to protect one of the other soldiers, Michael right. Durant, and they both died. But posthumously, they received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award for valor in the U.S., and uh, the guy that died protecting is Michael Duran is still alive today because of what they did. And that specifically, I mean, it touched my soul, just the kind of human being who would do that, the compassion, the courage, the strength, the selflessness. And it made me question this worthless piece of shit, selfish, selfish life I was living at the time. And like, were you ever in, because you know, a lot of people in that age, they're in sports, they, they tie themselves to a team. Did you have any of that before? When, or before was it... I moved to the U.S., I was very active. Like growing up in India, I used to yeah. play all kinds of sports. In Singapore, I was very, very active, very athletic. But once I got here and, you know, the 
and I don't blame like the environment. I take responsibility for my action. But as an impressionable young child at 13, especially having lived in four different cities, three different countries at that point, I was very adaptable. But the sort of shadow side of every strength and, and the of adaptability is that I was very impressionable. Mm. So I got in a group of friends that were going into drugs and alcohol. Okay. And so I was the one like pushing that line. Because I wonder if you, you know, this movie speaking to you, if it was like the idea of you not feeling part of a tribe that you could lean on. It was, it was. At least initially, it wasn't so much the tribal. It was more just the selflessness, like that mm -hmm. courage. Of, yeah. You know, I mean, that's awe-inspiring, uh, the kind of human being who would do that, you know? And I was not living any worth, any, like, meaningful life at the time, right? And so that was the trigger. So after watching the movie, I read the book and then just started devouring every book I could find on military and life in combat. And, pretty and how old were you when you... Around six, 16, 17? See, so I'm, in Can I'm from Canada, yeah. and we do not have the same military culture so i always find it very interesting when i come here because america's so proud of their military yeah and it's something where it's like if you would say your story to most canadians at 17 they'd be like what are you talking about like i think we have thirty thousand soldiers mm. so hearing that at a young age and then you know submitting to this process um i find very interesting and i wasn't even american at the time i was a, i was a, not a u.s citizen I was a green card holder. I was an Indian, right? Indian citizen. So, oh, wow. Okay. So when I decided to join, it was a challenge for my parents because this, when I decided to join, it was post 9-11. Mm -hmm. So almost inevitably I would go to war, which of course I did eventually. And so here's this kid like, and they, I, I they got, they saw me going down the drug path. Like I got, I'm not only was an idiot, but I was, I was not very good at getting away with this. So I got caught doing everything. So, uh, and so on the one hand, they're seeing me and they're like, you're fighting for a country that's not yours, going to a war that's not your fight. Why are you joining? You know, but on the other hand, they saw me going down this very dark path. And it was a very tough thing for my parents, understandably, you know? And so, uh, but I was dead set on this path. And uh, it took me, I had to fight my way to get into the Marines because I have a flat feet, I have scoliosis, I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. It transports about like 25% less oxygen through my body than what is normal. So it took me a year and a half to get medical waivers just to get in the military. But that's what I wanted. And to you do. were so dead set I on this mission. Set. I only only reason I got in was because it was post 9-11 military. So here's a young dumb kid who wants to go infantry on the front lines. We'll find a place for you. But I know friends who've gotten out of a peacetime military who didn't get into a peacetime military just because of flat feet. Forget about all the other stuff. So I didn't know they were that restricted. They were very special. But again, this was right after, you know, war had started. So they were they found a place for me. Yeah, because you know what? I was in grade 10 in 9-11. So if you're okay. a couple years older than me, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's and that's when I Wow, you don't want to know what I was doing at that age versus what you're doing. <laughs> so, um, so you go into the military, you serve, and you come out, and then how does this passion around like pushing the boundaries of fear continue? So the Marines is where that first birth because right. before this, I was scared of everything. I remember my mom; I was scared of Ferris wheels, roller coasters, like fucking everything. But the Marines is when I started to learn the beauty of suffering, of hardship, of struggle, of going to war with yourself. Because boot camp was hard, military training was mm -hmm. hard, you know. But I loved it. I thrived in there. Graduated infantry school with the honor graduate. And so after I got out, I got into outdoor sports. And you named the outdoor sport, I got into it. Because I was scared of heights. I went rock climbing, mountain climbing, skydiving. Because I was scared of open water, I went scuba diving, cave diving, ice diving. I was scared of tight spaces, so I went caving. You know, So I systematically confronted my fears through this vehicle of outdoor sports and nature as the playground. So, until I deployed to Iraq. Okay, so just to get back there before we go into deployment. Yeah. You're 17 and you're already observing the idea that you need to push past these fears. And I think a lot of people, you know, we have many different types of people listening, whether they're an athlete um, trying to get to the highest level or they are at the highest level, a strength coach who's trying to like, you know, dominate in their program and take their team to winning, 
an entrepreneur who's in that journey of like, because yeah. you're also an entrepreneur where it's like, yeah. how do I push through all this shit? How do I deal with the fear? Where did this idea of like getting comfortable with fear and pushing through it come from? It was, I mean, it was entirely birthed in the Marines going through boot camp. Okay. Because like I said before, I mean, I still remember once when I was a kid, my we lived in Singapore. So we traveled in that area. My parents took me to Australia. We went snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef. And I would I remember seeing the reef and it dropped. And after the reef ended, it dropped off into this emptiness of the ocean. And I got too scared and I turned around, you know. So because of the Marines, like Marine Corps training was really hard. We do brutal stuff. We're doing all kinds of crazy things. But the suffering was beautiful. You know, you learn you can't learn anything about yourself unless you go to war with yourself. So after coming out is when I was like, I, I, I found the beauty in that process of confronting my fears, confronting my weaknesses, going to war with my demons. And so that's what, that's what uh, set the stage for literally everything I am today. But that's where, where it all began. But let's say if we were to get into a mindset back then, like, because it's easy to, I hear what you're saying, but I almost want to bring people into experiencing it right now. So what am I scared of? I don't know. Um, sharks. I'm scared of sharks. So let's say I, I step my foot into the ocean. Let's say I'm in New Smyrna Beach, number one shark attack beach in, in the world, I think. So I get into the ocean. I start feeling this like voice of get, you know, get out, starting to freak me out. I don't want to go forward. What are you doing in your mind to push through that? Because whether it's like your extreme fear or again, like you know, some athletes I think are scared to commit to the process because what does it mean to give up everything to go into that? Or an entrepreneur where they're stuck of like, I got 50 grand in the bank. Am I going to give this all yeah. to go on to this journey? Like, what is what do you go through when you're like, okay, I'm going to step into the ocean. There's sharks around me. I'm going to keep going. Like, yeah. What's the internal chatter? So the first thing, and I wasn't as self-aware at the time as I am now, and I obviously learned a lot more about the science of it, the psychology of it. But the first thing is not to demonize or combat the fear or to resist it what most people do is when they feel fear they feel like i should not be afraid because we think of fear as a bad word right mm -hmm. so okay stop being scared and i used to do the same thing right like don't be a bitch or whatever your self-talk is now I, I when i fear shows up and i'm scared of almost all the things i do today terrified but the first thing is stop judging the fear accept its presence and that's literally as simple as i'm feeling afraid and on just even that simple thing, right? Neuroscience has shown when you pause to label and acknowledge the presence of an emotion, it reduces activity in the emotional parts of your brain, increases activity in the prefrontal cortex, what I call the human part of the yeah. brain, and basically the parts of the brain related to focus and awareness. So what that's doing is it's creating a space between you as the feeler of the, the, the emotion and you as the experiencer of that emotion. That's how you build that space. Because mo most of us, many of us, we experience an emotion and we react to it. We don't respond to it. The difference between responding and reacting. I talk difference. about this a lot, actually. A huge difference. Um, yeah, this. So there was a Buddhist monk. It's not a story. It's, it's not like a proverb. It's a real story. So this monk that I know, he was the only monk that I believe is a PhD in neuroscience and a Buddhist monk. And he calls himself the urban Buddhist monk. His name's Bonti. Anyways, I went through some really hard times and I would go to him. And actually, one of the first pieces of advice he gave me was. I don't have anxiety. It's just anxiety. I don't have fear. It's just fear. So this is this is interesting what you're saying. It's, you're doing it in action where he would like separate himself from the emotion, and that way you're not owning it anymore. I'm and, feeling it. and you're not feeling me. it. Yeah. It's, it's almost like oh, this is a phone. It's not yeah. exactly. So anyway, so most so people do that. They will say like I have depression, and then it becomes their self identity yeah. instead of saying my brain goes to a state of depression. I'm feeling it, but this is not who I am. Right, releasing that judgment, 
now allows you to accept the isness of the emotion. And I cannot stress this enough. When you accept the isness from that foundation of acceptance、mm-hmm. and releasing judgment, now you can now in that space you can choose what you want to do with the emotion. So let's let's put this in perspective, because I find like how do we bring this into the vision of people listening? So、uh, you're you're an entrepreneur.、Mm-hmm. Let's use that real situation. You have ten grand in the bank. You just gave it for rent. You're freaked out. What is the way to take this forward now? Okay, so I'm scared of the situation. Again, first off, pause, acknowledge the fear. It's okay to be scared. I'm not like、okay. I could make it get away. Now I assess what's what, what's the situation. What's the worst case scenario? Right? What do I do with this?、So、I'll give it a very concrete example. When I was writing a book on fear, I was terrified. I was terrified of writing a book on fear. I was terrified, and so what I did, I would literally write down like a column. Okay, what's the worst case scenario, and just get it all out. Worst case scenario, I'm judged. People will think I'm stupid. I'll get a one star review on Amazon. Nobody will buy it. They'll think I'm an idiot. Like it'll all this shit, right? And all that came true, right? And all, exactly, <laughs> all came true. And fuck, now it's <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> no. So okay, so I la- list out the possible worst case scenarios. Got it. Now that these are listed out, what can I do to prevent those worst case scenarios? So because I was scared of writing、mm. a terrible book, I studied from authors like Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup of the Soul series, Tim Ferriss, well known authors. I went deep and on the rabbit hole. How do you write a better book? My fear was in. Invaluable in writing a book that has now done very well. It's made an impact. It's been endorsed by people like Jack Canfield, Dalai Lama, many other people, Seth Godin. And the point is to say it's because I was scared of writing a bad book. I wrote a good book. I wrote a better book. That one now I'm proud of. So engage the fear, assess the fear, understand the fear, and then prepare for the fear. One of my many mantras is fear propels you to prepare.、Mm. When you engage it, you can use it as a source. The fear didn't go away. Even when I launched my book, I was fucking terrified. Yeah. Do you know Customano and Mike Tyson? I know Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Course, so、yeah. Customano was his coach, and、uh, I won't tell you. I won't vocalize the other Mike Tyson quote we said yesterday. But <laughs>、um, he had one where he said, "Fear is like fire." I don't know if you. I'm sure you've heard that somewhere. Yeah. So it's like fear can either be used as a useful tool, tool, warm you, heat your food, all this stuff, or if you have no respect for it, it will consume you and burn 100%. you. Even、so、in war, we used to say, "If you're not scared, you're either really stupid or you're lying." I wanted. I, I don't like. I don't want to go into battle of a literal war type battle, or even in the battlegrounds I play play in now, like in Antarctica, with someone who's not fear. Fear breeds respect. Yeah, and so、like、we don't want to release fear because you know I talk. You know, I'll coach people through like public speaking is a huge fear for people. Huge one. So one thing that I borrowed from a friend of mine, Darren Austin Hall, who's like a soundbowl musician. So he would coach other musicians, and he's、yeah. like. That feeling of fear you're getting is actually the universe giving you enough energy because you're going to do this massive.、Thing. Yeah. So when you publicly speak, so it's a similar thing where like this,、uh, you know, you're just reframing it where it's like, no, it's giving me the push and the、yeah. respect to focus in. And about public speaking, I mentioned this in Firvana. They did a study where they had all these public speakers because, like you said, it's the biggest fear there is.、Mm-hmm. And they told、uh, they had half of them try to calm down, like release the fear. They kept saying, "Calm down, release the fear." The other half just said, "Okay, accept the fear. Think of it as excitement. Use it." And to objective third-party viewers, the one who, who the ones who didn't try to get rid of the fear but actually embrace it and used it, performed far better consistently to third-party viewers. So the point is to say, don't eliminate it or fight it or resist it or try to make it go away when it show up. Accept its presence. Yeah, even some of these athletes, like think of the fear of being an athlete who's donate. You've donated your whole life to this thing. You're like, am I going to make it? Yeah. And Bill Russell, I, I mentioned a lot of athletes in Fiorvana. Bill Russell used to throw up before almost every game. One of the greatest basketball players of all time. Throw up before every game because he was terrified. The Bruce Spring, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, 
gets nervous and anxious before uh, his performances and he's a freaking boss like he's a badass you know so the point is like and i can't tell you how many athletes i've read about studied who talk about this uh it was jean-louis buffon the uh, the football the goalkeeper um during the World Cup, a few World Cups ago, I read an article about how he talks about it for every game. He's scared. And these are the best in the world at what they do because they recognize Even George St. Pierre, I didn't understand at the time because I was young. He talks, but he's like, I'm petrified every time I yeah. get in the ring. Like, I'm scared. This guy wants to kill me. Like, I'm scared. But he would come in so prepared yeah. because, like, that fear was driving him. Yeah. The fear engaged. Like when I before I do my expeditions, I am now terrified of going to Antarctica. My yeah. fear is that would I mean, just before coming out here, it's 108 degrees outside. I'm out dragging tires in this hot ass Arizona summer, <laughs> right? Because I'm scared of what will what will happen to me in Antarctica if I'm not prepared. That fear is useful. So are you addicted? I'm sure people have asked you this, not like some deep question, but are you addicted now to the fear? Has that become an addiction where you crave that motivation to prepare for whatever the next thing is i value it and i crave it with consciousness and awareness meaning that if you aren't if you an addiction like i mean i used to struggle with addiction with drugs and then alcohol after the war if you're not careful any addiction even a quote-unquote positive one can be all-consuming to the point that it drives you into some very very dark spaces mm -hmm. or even in my playgrounds to death many people who do the things that i do die doing the things that i that i do and so point is to say, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a dangerous game. I've lost yeah. a finger for playing that game and, uh, and I've faced my own mortality many, many, many times in my life. Right. Okay. So point is to say, I engage it with consciousness and awareness, which I didn't always do before. A lot of time in my life, I was just jumping from one crazy thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Now I temper it by recognizing when it can drive me too far down the edge and I balance it out. So how do you bring a rational aspect? Cause like, you know, especially you've heard Joe talk about entrepreneurs, like their risk aversions, like whatever, just I'll go all in. But sometimes we need a little bit of like rational mind to approach. So how do you start to build in like, okay, wait, maybe I am pushing it too far. Even though you're doing this, how long is this trek? 110 days. 1,700 miles, you said? 1,700 miles. Oh, man. So you're doing Completely seven, it's alone. Like, I don't even know what the bigger fear is, to be honest, the trek or being alone. The isolation, possible death. The, like, are you going to have any, are you going to speak to anyone? I will have a sat phone. Uh, I will have a sat phone. I'll be sending audio updates out there. But that's a very, very small chunk of time in the tent, maybe five, ten minutes of that. Other than that, I mean, during the day, all the day, you're completely alone. So what would have made this too, what would have made this too inconquerable of a task, like an extra two days? Like, where was the limit that what you're like? You know, as far as when it comes to navigating that risk, yeah. you have to play a little bit on the edge to find out where that line is. Like as a very concrete example, you know, I was, I was out in Vermont a couple of winters ago and just getting an Airbnb and training out there for Denali in Antarctica. I was in Antarctica a year and a half ago. And um, I would do cold river dips in the middle of winter when it's like ridiculously cold. I'd go into the river where when, when you have cold water flowing, it's even colder. And so I would do like two minutes and then five minutes and stretch the line. And then one day the water was so frozen with over with ice, I had to find a different spot, went in for eight minutes and I got hypothermia. So point is to say you play on the edges and you learn where that line is, you know? So when I got to doing 110 days in Antarctica, that didn't happen overnight. Like you've decision. done similar expeditions. I've done yeah. a lot. I've been a, done a one month crossing of Greenland. I spent 350, uh, dragging 190 pounds sled for 350 miles. I've been to Antarctica before. I've done multiple smaller polar expeditions. I was just in the Arctic. I did a month of worth of polar expeditions up in the Arctic. 19 of those days were completely alone. So Antarctica wasn't 
It didn't happen overnight, right? You push that edge and then you keep expanding and you choose. I mean, like there's guys, there's a great documentary called The Alpinist about this guy who used to free solo up ice. The Alpinist? The Alpinist. Alpinist. The Alpinist. Okay. He free soloed like- What does that mean to free solo? Climbing ice walls with no rope. I mean, climbing rock with no rope is like Alex Honhold did in Free Solo is wild. I used to do that. I used to free solo. So talking about risk, I used to, not at his level, of course, not at Alex Honhold's level, but I used to free solo up 100 foot rock, like big enough that if you fall, you're going to die, right? And uh, that line of risk is so absurd. I chose to stop doing that when I got married. I'm no longer, but uh, when I got married, because that that was a conversation that it was unfair to put somebody through that through that risk in my opinion to each their own in my in my decision making it was this was unfair so i made a very conscious decision that that line of risk was too far and i have no desire to ever get back into free soloing so i make a conscious Is decision that like what what happens though after you do this expedition you're like should i need the next hit now i got to go free but the, solo but the hit with um the hit if you want to call that with polar exploration is very different than rock climbing okay. in polar exploration it's not as dangerous as free solo climbing, as mountain climbing, but it is far more suffering. So for me, the draw is actually the mental physics. And I'll explain why. Like when they're climbing up a mountain or even a rock wall, firstly, it's much shorter. Well, let's say a big mountain like Everest. It's two months, three months. It's still a long time. But as you go up and down the mountains, the views change. The terrain changes. The, the, the environment changes. The days change. You take rest days to acclimatize. You have uh, in mountaineering, like for example, I was in Denali and you're on a thin ridge line at 16,000 feet and you're such a thin ridge line and there's this thousands of foot drop on each side. And so the environment forces your mind to be right there and be very present. Like the flow state. The flow state. Were you at when Stephen Kotler was there? I was. Right, and he spoke yeah, about flow that state, exactly. flow state. Yeah. So doing things like downhill skiing, doing things like mountain climbing, the environment forces you into flow. Like when I'm on such a thin ridge line, my mind's not wandering. I'm thinking about the next step. In polar exploration, you're skiing on flat white nothingness oh, every single day. It does, the views don't change. Every day is pretty much flat white nothingness. You're doing the same damn thing, dragging that heavy ass sled. It's not dynamic. So the monotony of it, the stillness of it, the sheer unrelenting grind of it, it is mentally and physically far more suffering than mountaineering, but not as dangerous. So my draw is the suffering. Not yeah. The and I want to actually get into a bit of your, I don't know for sure your spiritual practices, but you talk a lot about Buddhism and would you call, I, I know it's Buddhism is not a religion, it's sort of a way of life, but would you call yourself somebody who practices Buddhist Definitely, I definitely practice a lot of their, yeah. uh, their ethos and ideals. Yeah. And, and this idea of like life is suffering, you've sort of now flipped it. Because I, I like to study Tantra and alchemy, and, and one of the basis points of that is you can alchemize, the darker you go, the deeper into your darkness you go, you can alchemize into a brighter light. So it's like, 100%. you're almost going into this extreme level of it where you're going like you've done 10 day silent retreats and darkness Dark retreats, retreats yeah. which actually i want to get into that before i finish my thought like okay. well hold on okay so you have me all the idea it's amazing so <laughs> the darkness retreat i think is prepping you for this but like the the biggest fear of humanity so when emperor or when popes were like basically the figureheads in europe the biggest punishment to somebody wasn't death. It was excommunication. This idea of isolating you from the tribe or the pact or, and it's, it's really this like abandonment fear is so deep in people. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. When you think of this polar expedition you're doing, what freaks me out the most is I was with 10 buddies and we prepped. I, I might actually do it, mm. but the idea of doing it all alone with no one around you, just your thoughts and literal white nothingness, you're going to a hallucinate some crazy shit, I think. But like 
that fear is, is really deep. That's like the biggest fear of humanity, this excommunication of like, I'm alone. So you pushed a lot of the physical fears. How did you get into this? Like, okay, I'm going to go do 10 days of silent retreat yeah. and darkness. Where I want to, I want to talk more about that. Cause that I personally have debated doing. Yeah. Um, where did you get the motivation to do it? Did you, did you work your way up? Like you did everything else or you did like a silent retreat first or you just, so, yeah. So what happened was, I mean, I'd done a lot of hard physical challenges. The first time I went into a seven day darkness retreat, the first time, okay. second time was 10 days. First time what drew me in was I had gone through this divorce and I broke my sobriety when I went through it really challenged. Like I, and when I break, when I do anything, I do it pretty hard. So I drank <laughs> for a was lot. Was it a, a bender Vegas <laughs> or what was it? Oh, just, I mean, I would be, I do, that was the point in my life downing like a bottle of vodka a day. I would drink oh, like man. all day until I pass out, wake up, go to the liquor store, get more. And this would last till my, I'd be throwing up. Sometimes I still remember throwing up, picking up a bottle right after I throw up just to drink more. And so I didn't obviously like that version of me. So I wanted to, like I'd done a lot of physical stuff, but I wanted to now experience stillness to find some new answers. So I didn't know a darkness retreat existed. So I was going to go to the silent retreats and I stumbled into this concept of a darkness retreat and I was immediately hooked because when you're in darkness, you're shutting off one of the primary ways in which we engage with the world, our visual sense. So as a result, even in the simplest ways, right now I can look at that and say there's a door, there's a wall. And my mind, my consciousness has someone external to latch onto. Without that, it has nothing external to latch onto. So you're forced to go within. And, you, and does that the, is beautiful. Does the veil of duality start to break pretty quick? Very much so. You start seeing lights in the darkness. So literally in a very literal sense. I mean, the brightest white light I've ever seen in my entire life, blindingly white to the point that I was covering my eyes like this, sitting in a dark room because it was so blinding, was in a dark room. So talk about the non-dualism, right? Light and darkness literally coexisting in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, so when I meditate, I'll wear like a blackout mask. Mm. And I try to get as dark as I can. And I yeah. start seeing purple. Yeah. It's like bright purple. And then weird did, okay, without sounding crazy here, but like almost like a, old western movie like these clips would start playing yeah. I, I what happened with the 10 days of darkness so you saw bright lights but did you start seeing if you're comfortable talking about of course, it, I don't know. did of you start seeing any like figures or like yeah. things pop up shapes in the light that would reveal that or as uh i mean you can again whatever the paradigm you have on this but god the universe your subconscious speaking to you through those shapes you know so i had like i mean countless meditations of different versions of this but as one example, I remember one meditation, I saw this sort of blue light coming into uh, from above me, almost like a shape of a hand coming into me. And then this orange light coming out here from my kind of heart, soul, going up in surface, turning white, and these white crystals would kind of and like would, would explode it and, I, and would fall. And then the next day I had this immense light show and a conversation with God that left me bawling in tears. And it was like, to me, it was God was reaching into my soul and tapping into something and, and getting, showing me the power of the human soul and like giving it to me in ready for readiness for what's coming in Antarctica. You know, so the light shows you experience the shapes that they take. Another time I saw this kind of like a Viking king standing in front of me through the light in this red light formation, you know. So, you think that Viking king was you? I do believe it was. I think like I was in, in the darkness too. I was tapping into... The, um, the ideals of tapping into spirits of warriors past and channeling through them. Mm -hmm. Like you, you can tap, I mean, ancient cultures, tribal cultures do this all the time, right? And I think people get caught up on like, especially with this modern scientific lens, we say, oh, you can't actually call a person back from the, 
whatever, a spirit from the ancient warrior past to have it be in front of you. But the point is, whether or not it's quote-unquote real is not the point. Well, what is real? Then? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that, we can exactly. take this, yeah, but... but the point is, what like if it's real to me, it's real. And if I can channel that, it's as real as anything else. And that's what matters, right? Because I'm tapping into something. And if that and, and that's something, it doesn't have to be a real being that I can physically touch, like sit in front of me, right? I'm tapping into something and that spirit is awakening in yeah. me. That's fucking real. And, it, and you, uh, it allows you to tap into something in yourself that you don't know you have. Because as human beings, we are all, we're all flawed creatures. You, every human being is. No one's perfect. I'm obviously not perfect. Or and we have, are we not? There's no one flaws because flaws don't exist. Our, <laughs> I feel you on that paradigm too. There's obviously like perfection uh, in the imperfections. Got it. Totally understand what you mean by that. But the point, I guess, where I was going with that is to say that I believe that we are that, and, and this is also coming from someone who one time in my life would have labeled myself as an atheist, right? So I've experienced, I've explored all these different avenues and through life experiences, let me to tap into my own version of what I believe God to be. Everybody's got their own paradigm and when mine is mine, right? Not a right, wrong, good, bad. Mm-hmm. So point is to say that tap, like when I recognize the limitations of what I can do as one man by tapping into something beyond me, the human soul, God, the energies of something, it. It allows me to tap into a limitless pool that that makes me stronger than just the 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 mere mortal that I am, and I've viscerally experienced that doing the hard shit that I do. Yeah, I <laughs> the I give this to people to sort of explain what you're saying. I think I was telling you this last night, the Ram Dass documentary, where this idea that life is nothing but an internal game. So Ram Dass had a stroke. He, for people who don't know Ram Dass, he was a spiritual teacher. What he was known for was his ability to just publicly speak like this elegant speaker back in the 70s, I want to say. Mm. And then he had a stroke and his ability to speak got taken away. But there's this great documentary called Going Home where it shows that his like mood didn't go down where most people would get a stroke. So yeah. his internal environment made this thing like, no, the stroke was good because now it's bringing me closer to God. Yeah. That's what was real yeah. to him. Yeah. And so this idea of what's real, what's not real, like what you're proving with your thing, like whether it's not true that you're channeling some like Thor God, if in your mind you are and it pushes you to do this extra level. So even when it comes to athletics, like channeling these things outside of you to excel in your athletics or let's say in business, like channeling whatever, your Warren Buffett energy, I don't know. Yeah. But you can borrow from others and amplify it yourself. Exactly. But you need to give yourself the room to understand how to do that. And that's you what I think be, you were forced into. stillness. You yeah. have to go into stillness. You know, Carl Jung says, we talked about this, people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own soul. And so sometimes even the positive things we do, like work on your business or like athletics, I did this. When I came back from Iraq and I went across to Greenland for one month, positive thing, right? I got speaking gigs from it. People were like, and it's awesome. It was a very positive experience. But when I look back on it, I was doing things just to run away from facing my own demons. Yeah. Even the positive thing. So, but when you engage uh, stillness, as Carl Jung also says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Cannot stress how valuable that is. The only way to make that unconscious conscious, I mean, there's a few ways, but the, uh, in my experience, the most profound ways is stillness. Go sit and still in a dark room. Hell, even if you don't want to do that, sit in your own room. Don't do shit you, for a day. You know what I tell people? I'm like, because I, when I meditate, I've went and I've learned all these different techniques and, but, but the techniques are still in action. So like, let's say if I'm doing like an old Taoist technique, I'm still focusing on bringing energy in and cycling it and all that stuff. So how do I sit in silence? And this, uh, someone downloaded this to me. So the, the word silent, what does it also turn into if you take those letters and scramble them up? 
Think about it. S-I-L-E-N-T. What it, What can you turn that into? Stillness? No. <laughs> mm, tell me. I'm not sure. Listen. Ah, uh, got you. So oh, yeah. when you're listen. silent, yeah, you can yeah, actually yeah. listen to what's happening, like what Absolutely. happened with you, like right? Like you were saying. Like, I mean, like I was saying yesterday, when you are only in silence, can you really start to hear? Yes. And, or listen. Listen. And um, I guess listen is the active of hearing. Like respond, react. Yeah, yeah work. Work, we have yeah. something there. But, um, you know, people are listening to this like, hey, this is a podcast about like athletics, but how does it apply? It's, it's the same thing, I think, anywhere. Like if you're an athlete who has a sticking point in your game and you give yourself the silence to listen and actually go inward and see what's going on, you'll come up with the solution. Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur or a strength coach who's trying to be the best at your career, Sometimes just going into more action isn't the yeah right. And, and I have a I have a friend who's a high level uh, sports performance. He works with the best of the best. I'm not gonna mention his name, but he works with the best of the best, right? And he was telling me we're having a deep conversation about it's this. Me, isn't it? <laughs> Different friend, but okay, yeah, no, yeah, he yeah. did too. But uh, <laughs> but he was telling me how a lot of his clients won't want to go into that space because he would tell them, okay, why don't we go there, kind of sit still, open the door, and they're like, well, will that make me better? At my game, and he's like, I don't know, because you don't know what's going to come out the other de- uh, the other door, right? And and so if they're if they're staying at a certain level, so this is what, and this is not just with athletes; human beings do this. I'm too scared because the devil you know is greater than the devil you don't. So I'm too scared to leap off that edge because I don't know what the fuck's down there. What the what's, it's what's the idea of the unknown? It's is the so unknown. Fearful. But the thing is, if you go there and you go there with a with a true like I'm going there with the purpose of skiing across Antarctica. If you go there, going to I want to open these doors. Kobe Bryant used to meditate. He talks about this daily. Like he used to meditate daily. But if you go there, open these doors into your soul that have never been opened before, with the intention that I want to leverage whatever mm. comes out of those doors to become better at my craft. You will fucking become better at your craft. But you can stay at this level and say, all right, I'm fucking great at my craft. But the th- here's the thing. It's not just like the greatness at your craft. It's the soul. The, the, the greatest hero's journey is the journey within. And if you want more out of life, there's like no matter how great you are, no matter how much you've experienced, there is always more to be experienced. And it, you, every time we reach a level of greatness, a level of um, a new achievement, you're going to now plateau at that level. You're going to now, this has become the norm, right? So how do you constantly up-level? How do you constantly up-level? And up-level doesn't just mean at your craft in the spiritual sense too. Like ultimately, what are we What are we seeking, right? I think, yes, we're seeking this uh, meaning to our lives, greatness at our craft. But if you want to experience more awe in life, and that's how you experience awe. To experience true awe, you have to explore the depths of the abyss. That's the duality you're talking about. Playing on all edges of all dualities allows you to find the non-dualism in them. So by going into, like, as a very concrete example, again, when I came out of the darkness, I'll fi- finish the story and then you can... You, you well, I'm going to translate you so people understand. Sure, yeah. sure. I'll finish the story and then you, it hopefully makes it more concrete. When I came out of the darkness, uh, especially the seven-day one, and I saw the light for the first time and I took off my, you know, they took me out of the dark room, put a mask on me, sat outside and said, take it off when you're ready. And I saw the world, took off the mask. The way the light looked in those few moments... I've never seen the, the 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 brightness of the world as luminous, as powerful in those moments. I mean, so profound, it moved me to tears. And I remember thinking, I you know, I remember thinking that I, that I felt this deep sense of gratitude for every bit of suffering I've ever experienced in my life because in a very visceral way, I noticed how you cannot really see the power of the light unless I'd been in the dark, right? And that's obviously figurative, not just literal. I couldn't see the light that way had I not been in the dark for seven days. So that's the power of yeah, and I and it's like how do we distill this down for people to take into wherever they are? Because you're you're speaking at a level that I've sort of been to because I've done three day silent retreats and like I've explored the depths a little bit like you. But um, you know, if you're an athlete, what makes winning so sweet? 
is all that effort, the losses you've taken on the way, the struggle, pushing to, you know, what makes succeeding in business worth it is like how much, when you're an entrepreneur, you're a strength coach, you're a personal trainer, and you've like, you know what, I'm going to go build this gym. What's made it worth it is you putting all the work in to open the doors and then the day in and day out grind yeah. that's suffering to then have that thriving business so you can have the reward later. Because the where I got that lesson was video games. You would use the cheat codes back in the day, like God mode, <laughs> and the game would become would be super fun for like 30 minutes maybe. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, this game's lost all of its fun. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same for, you know, anything in life. Um, and if you can tie yourself to, like, there was something you were saying and I was like, yeah, it's basically tying yourself to fear or tying yourself to the unknown. If you're get comfortable with the unknown, that's almost like the cheat code. And to build off what you said, just like every athlete can get that it's the struggle that makes the joy, the winning worth it. The entrepreneur can get why the rewards are worth it when I've struggled for it. The same thing applies to the spiritual journey. And that's the point I'm making is suffer in the spirit. Because when you seek out suffering of the spirit, you will find true salvation of the soul. So that's the point that I stress is that don't just play in that edge of your craft is like the is, is experience that stillness so you can tap into the spiritual realm. And you and when you open those doors, right, you're not ready for what'll come through. And what comes through, you don't know. You don't know when you experience that level of stillness. You're not just having the beautiful sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns coming through. You're also having some dark shit coming through, the demons. But the valuable thing is whatever comes through and you face it, now you can engage it. Like, I'll, again, a concrete example of this. When I did, a, I did a run across Liberia, it was about a marathon a day for a week uh, to help raise funds to build a school out there. And about day four of the run, this aching pain hit me in my uh, shin. And I could try to stop. I was about 17, 18 miles in. I tried to stop, put some cream on. It wasn't going away. So I was like, fuck, all right, just, I got to limp my way through it. So I was limping, limping. And now I'm not only battling the physical pain, I'm battling the psychological pain. Like, I got three more days of this. And then suddenly I started booking it, like sprinting all out. And the whole time I'm sprinting, I'm saying things to myself, like, remember Neil? Neil's a buddy of mine that died in Iraq. And I struggle with survivor's guilt. To this day, I feel it. Remember Neil? It should have been you that died in Iraq instead of him. Suck it the fuck up. If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. People are suffering all around you. I mean, here's Liberia. People have gone through war, civil war, poverty. People are suffering all around you. Earn your life. Earn this. And I was saying these very dark, intense things to myself. Those five miles run that I did to finish that day's run, fastest five miles I ran the entire trip. Now, here's the thing. I don't always talk to myself that way. But because I had tapped into my demons, demons, my demons have value. So when you play with those, so an athlete listening or an entrepreneur listening, we've all been through dark shit in our life. And most of us do everything we avoid to avoid it. But when you actually bring your demons to the surface, they're now your allies. To this day, man, I will watch war, scenes from war movies knowing they will make me cry, knowing they will make me trigger that survivor's guilt, knowing they will make me feel like I haven't earned this right to my life that I've been gifted. Dude, when I was in Iraq, my, my vehicle drove over an active bomb. It didn't explode. My friends drove over an active bomb. He, he got killed and he died. Why the fuck did that happen? I didn't, and there's no, there's no, I, I can't ever explain that. I mean, even I think about like in Liberia, when I was running, I met these two kids. One of them wanted to go to um, a medical training school. The other wanted to go to a vocational mm-hmm. training school. Odds of that happening were damn near zero. One kid had lost his mother in the war. Father left. He was staying with the other kid in a tiny village. What's the difference is I was born to good parents in India. As a result, my life is a million times better than most people who are born into hell on earth. And I didn't do shit to deserve that. So to me, I have... I believe that I owe a debt for this life. There's a debt I owe for this life that I've been gifted and the dark shit I tap into, this feeling that I didn't suffer, that I didn't die in the war and other people did, I got to earn my right to this life. And that dark shit is so fucking powerful. It's yeah, so powerful. It, it's, 
it's funny how though we can lose perspective on it because I, I think a lot of people get moments of this. Like you go to a third world country or something, you see how somebody's living. Um, you hear a story about someone else. You're like, yeah, I'm really grateful. But then they lose, they almost get distracted and lose that perspective. Like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm Jewish. My grandparents, I have one set that were, they escaped the Holocaust, but ended up like in Russia and were like in a slave camp in Russia. And, you know, that's two generations from me in my bloodline. And it's like, I can't ever complain about anything. Right. But we get caught up and we lose that perspective. And I think what I've learned about dealing, speaking to a lot of successful people, whether they're like the best in their craft as like a strength coach or some massive entrepreneurs I've met is like, they have this like underlying gratitude by looking backwards and then turning that into a power yeah. and moving forward. It's like yeah. Dave Lawrence, who's on our board, he runs um, Mecca, Michigan Elite Conditioning for Athletes. So he has five gyms, I want to say now. Um, he talks about, oh, gap in the game. Um, Benjamin Hardy, yeah. his book, this idea of like, stop looking at the gap and look at everything you've gained and then, you know, move forward that way. And this is almost a little bit of a way of looking at that is like, for you, oh, I survived is actually a massive gain. But we can sometimes look at a gap and that's where maybe this guilt comes from, like why me? And then, and then turning it into this like thing to move forward. But, um, I, I don't know how to like bring this into, should I just transition into supplements? No, I'm kidding. But, um, this like constantly checking yourself and allowing yourself the space. I think that's the thing you're trying to, uh, show here is like, give yourself the space to listen. And then you can rework those demons that come out. But if you don't give yourself the space to listen to those demons, they'll own you because you're running away from them. They're not going anywhere. And there's no running away from them. There's no like, hey, I'm going to go on a vacation in Hawaii and the demons will come. Or, hey, I'm going to go. And I had to like, it, it, people think they can run away from it, but it's following with you like this heavy yeah. piece of luggage. Like I said, and like what Carlio said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I, so how do people start to uncover their subconscious in your mind? You know, you can do work like going to uh, sort of seminars, personal uh, development work, coaches, therapy, and there's value in a lot of that stuff. But the uh, the problem can be is that anytime you're going to an external source, that paradigms are being attached onto you. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I stress stillness like again it's not like i've gone to seminars i've gotten a lot of value from working with coaches and all that kind of stuff but there's a time where you just have to go within and you have to go into darkness retreats go spend a time alone like when i spent 10 days alone in the arctic and literally there's no stimuli right like barren white nothingness man your mind will you take you places anything? did you see anything that like was a vivid like mirage type thing you you uh i mean i didn't go long enough to see but like i've had brief moments on polar expeditions where there's this effect that many polar explorers talk about of the second man or the third man where you sort of feel like there's a another presence with you do you think there is i do ascribe to that i think there is something and so well you're gonna you're gonna God. have enough time now i experience yeah. pretty fucking deep to find some answers there exactly i can't, I can't wait to speak exactly. to you after exactly um so i think but i think that's what to stress to people is go there man like spend some time and go deep and it has to feel uncomfortable another really practical way you, you touched on dualism you know is I, I look at like the concept of dualism and in life, there is these series of dualities that mm -hmm. exist, right? Like life, death, darkness, light, uh, ego, humility, fear, nirvana, pain, pleasure, all these, there's constant dualities, right? Contentment, discontentment. 
And we always frame one side of the duality as bad, very often, right? Con discontentment is bad. Ego is bad. But the problem is, that's, that's the problem. The reality is none of these things are bad. Pain is not bad. Fear is not bad, right? Ego is not the enemy. Ego is not bad. All of these things have value. So how do you make this actionable? Every point in my life, I am looking for one duality causing me friction, and I go play on the other edge of that duality. Okay, so bring that into terms. So I'll make it yeah, concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for example, I was running uh, one day, this was many, many years ago, and I remember seeing a sign that said 5K fun run. And I had visceral disgust at the idea of a fun run. Like you don't run for fun, you should suffer every run. That's fucking bullshit. And the problem is, if you look at the duality of suffering and play, or and again, don't get caught up in the semantics of it, right? Whatever the word is. I had gone so far on the edge of suffering, I'm still pretty fucking good at that, <laughs> that edge, that- You forgot how to play. That I forgot how to play. Yeah. So what I did was I consciously engaged play. I would do sometimes runs just for fun. I would do like, I would go, like I remember once I went to a retreat and during the breaks and retreats, they would do these very light things like dancing, hula hoops. And I'd be like, fuck that. I'd rather go do hundred burpees in the corner. That's the you know? coming out, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the point is I started doing more playful things. Now, look, I will always be someone who, who leans, if you look at that particular duality on the edge of suffering, but- by, by engaging play, not only do I have more tools to access in my playground that I play in, I have now opened my consciousness to, to, to places that I wouldn't have otherwise opened. Because no matter how self-aware we are, we all don't know what we don't know. We're trapped within our current paradigms and constructs of reality. So the, the way to get out of there is go play on the other edge of the duality so far that you feel off balance. Like another example, I'm always looking at a duality to play with. I, every point in my life, I have one duality causing me friction. So there was a time when it was before I went in the darkness, it was control and surrender, right? That's one duality. So control is, most of us, if you're listening, an entrepreneur, control freak, right? My world's in my fucking hands. I'm, I'm controlling my reality. Oh, but even all the, like, I think most people listening here are very, this is what I actually wanted to get out of you too. They're very comfortable in control. So- the strength coach is a master at controlling all the avenues for their athlete to build the best program to maximize their strength, increase their vertical, get yeah. them faster. The personal trainer who's like, whether it's someone coming for body comp, yeah. it's all plant. Everything is in the program, which yeah. is a control. Yeah. So I want to hear where you go from this because I think this will help a lot of these people out because they're they're trying to control and you need to. You need to have some. Of course. I'm like, not saying control yeah, is bad. Again, right. control is not a bad thing. Right. But and I still obviously very much control. control yeah, yeah. So the point is, cannot stress. No, no, no side of every duality is bad. But how do you play on the edge of surrender? So what I did, for example, is I had a little tiny little notebook that I would carry around, and every time there was something very, we've all kind of experienced those mystical things. By in the, the way, I'm experience. listening to you, and I never grabbed my phone, but you gave me an insight that I'm going to share, and I don't want to interrupt you. Right to that, sure, yeah. Um, so, um, like every time there was one of those like mystical kind of experiences in life that we all experienced, we're like, whoa, that's so wild. How did that happen? What are the odds of that happening? I would write it down. So for as again, another concrete example, I went on for an eight hour tire dragging session all night and I was like exhausted just starting it. I didn't want to go do this. I hadn't, you know, how heavy is the tire? Very fucking heavy. I don't know exactly, but heavy. Like it's, it's, uh, no, it's one of those little cars. The, <laughs> yeah, tiny little. <laughs> that's a Hot Wheels tire. I'm struggling. <laughs> but I was going for an all night. This was before I went to Antarctica last time. So I was going for an all night session. So as it is, of course, there's yeah, yeah. sleep deprivation. And I, didn't, I was like, fuck, I didn't want to do this. I get out there and within the first hour, I meet a woman. And this is in Arizona. She has a dog that's half Arctic wolf. I consider Arctic wolf my spirit animal. And I meet this woman with an Arctic wolf dog. And at this point, no, like I, everybody, I get stopped tire dragging often. People are like, what the hell are you doing? Rarely do people ask why. This woman asked me why. And we went into a very deep spiritual talk. And then I parted ways and I continued on my journey. And it was like 
what are the odds of me in freaking Arizona meeting a person who went and had such a spiritual talk with that has a dog that is part Arctic wolf? And so the point is to say, I wrote this down. Now what I'm doing is I'm creating, I'm, I'm creating a belief, a paradigm. I'm, I'm creating evidence to justify, to, to prove that there's mysticism in the universe that I can surrender to. And even the darkness. Another reason I went into the darkness. Darkness is a pure act of surrender. I'll, I'll tell you what I wrote. So uh, it's, you, it's not that you don't know what you don't know. Tell me if this is ridiculous, but this just came to me. It's you only know what your subconscious is willing to let you know at that moment. Mm-hmm. And it will let you know more the more you listen to it. But you have to like let it come out. Does that make any sense, or is that it not does make? Because that that I've never. Yeah. I would have to play this thought out. This is what happens to me. I talk to someone, then the thought gets put in. I love and it. I have to go into That's silence and try to unpack it. But it's it. like, I love it, man. Because yeah. like, even like, yeah, whether it's your subconscious letting you now see that wolf, yeah, to then allow you to give the space to build whatever the story is, but like, um. Yeah, sorry, just that. No, no, I love that. Yeah, that's and that's that's I think like surrender is such a powerful weapon in your craft, whatever you want to do. Because look, man, most of life we do not control. You can try to be control all you want. Shit's gonna happen. Like I said, my vehicle drove over an active bomb. Why the fuck did that explode? I don't know. You know. So, I you, when you surrender to accepting um, the mysticism of the universe, the mysticism of god the universe whatever your current paradigm this is not to stress like belief you don't believe in god cool it's not <laughs> awesome right like whatever your paradigm is there are things that happen in life a ton of things that happen without your control but when you surrender and that's also leads to then an act of acceptance you can then control and this is not to say don't control your fate like control what you can within the realms of it but surrender to the mysticism and surrender has opened me up to so much of uh it's taking my life to the next level and so when There's i got a to part a point in the that Tao, I, though that talks about like surrender no but it's like preparedness meets surrender. I'm going to butcher this. I can't remember what chapter it is in the Tao, but they talk about like, and this is sort of the way you're living. Like you're preparing the best you can, but you're also allowing the surrender. Exactly. So it's like, I wish I knew it. Uh, I'll try to put it in the show notes, but yeah, like. And so even for an athlete, for entrepreneur, like there's most of shit you can't control. Well, this is what I want. I think people nerd out on this and it's good that you're coming here because we got 11 minutes left and I want to get this out. Like, I'm sure people would love to know how you're preparing for this journey, but from like the physical, mental, like all aspects, like, you know, I know we're happy that you're going to be taking all of our supplements prepping up to the journey. Honored by the support. Brother. Yeah. So we'll yeah. get that going. But like, what is like, it's funny. You're, we were talking about this yesterday. Like I'm trying to lean out. You're like, no, give me all the weight. I got to fatten <laughs> up. So like, yeah. what, what are you doing? Like from a physical training side, uh, mental training side, nutrition and diet and all these things how are you preparing for this journey which eventually you're also gonna have to surrender to when you're in the arctic so like you're getting yourself ready but what is what does that look like so i'll share briefly the fit and i can i can maybe spend since we don't have a lot of time go more into the mental side because i think that might be the most fascinating actually i think these people would also love to hear physical? how you're physically okay, trained so there, physical, a lot of these guys are strength co- yeah okay yeah so physical training a lot of strength training because the unique thing about training for polar exploration is you have to have strength to drag a 400 pound sled you have to have endurance to be able to do it for 12 hours a day, and you got to do it while you're fat. None of these three things go together, right? So I'm doing a lot of strength work, daily, so month of strength work, two-a-day tire training. So I'm dragging the very yeah, – so tire, tire dragging is my core training. That's like the that's most, you actually mimicking that's simulating dragging. the sled, exactly. Yeah. So the tire dragging is the most – the thing I do most. That's like the polar exploration training mechanism. 
So strength training, tire dragging, and then I go hiking as well. I'm not even running as well because my fat ass, it's harder to like, and I don't want to injure myself. I've injured, I used to run ultra marathons. That was my core focus. Right now it's just tire dragging and very consciously I wear a chest strap. So I'm keeping my heart rate in zone true, zone two to build aerobic capacity. I do strength training and then once to twice a week because I really enjoy the high intensity shit. I like that kind of suffering too. So once in a while there's an enjoyment factor, but also to build that power endurance kind of capacity as well. So I'll do that uh, during the during the week as well. And then weekends, I do longer sessions. So it'll just be like one longer tire session and one longer hike. That's the essence of the and, physical And how training. are you, like when you're in the Arctic, how are you recovering? Are you sleeping 10 hours a day or what are you no, doing? No, I wish. Uh, I'll be sleeping eight at the start. And if I have to cut that down in order to make the distance, because you, it takes three to four hours of just 10 time that you can't avoid. To build the tent? To not just to build, but to build a tent to boil snow for water that just takes as long as it takes you have to boil snow for water to eat your food like it all the the stuff that's not sleeping and skiing that takes i mean in three to three to four hours is being efficient as hell uh because boiling snow just takes time so if i the goal is to ski 12 hours three to four hours of tent time sleep eight hours but i'm fairly certain that I won't be able to cover the distance I need to cover in 12, even in 12 hours, unless I get fucking amazing snow conditions, which again, crossing my fingers, but surrender. I have no idea what I'll get. So then I might have to slowly cut into sleep a little bit because I can't cut out 10 times. So, the, and this is where like my, I would figure you'd have to like train how to fast because you're not eating the whole time, so, but then you can't because you got to be fat and like, yeah, so you're right. I, but I, but I did do, I did do a fasted training before going to, I don't now, I'm too close to Antarctica to do it. But I did do like where I did a five day fast where I was averaging about three hours of training every day. And after four and a half days of no food, I went for four hours of tire dragging. Fucking brutal. Absolutely brutal. So I did okay. do shit like that. I did a 36 hour fast for my birth to celebrate my birthday. I did 36 hours of fast. And in that 36 hours, I did 10 hours of meditation and 10 hours of tire dragging. What did you do with the other hours? Uh, it was a transition phase to get from the tire matter to get back, set it up, with the um, logistics, all that. You know? Yeah. And I'm excited. I think the supplement regime we're going to get you locked into, like definitely the aminos to help build weight, um, try to get your mitochondria, like basically making you as optimal as you physically can. Because mm -hmm. um, you can't even take any of our stuff out there, right? Like you're till the rim. Like if we wanted to give you sleep supplements or something to take like that. It's like, dude, I'm so conscious of weight cutting. I'm yeah. cutting tags off my shirts. Yeah, Fish that's the cat. Yeah, yeah. I've cut off my toothbrush in half, so I save grams there. All the all the zips on my tent, I've cut the handles off the zips and tied a string to directly to the zipper. By cutting off the handles, I've saved another forty grams off uh, my tent. I am like how much food are you bringing? Weighing, uh, it'll be about sixty two hundred calories a day, which is weighing about one to one point one kilos a day. A day, and then the goal is. I to, guess you don't need a fridge. No, you certainly don't need that. Exactly. <laughs> it stays pretty cold out there. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, so I managed to get 6,200 to weigh about one, which was, again, ruthless, like scientific, trying to find the right foods to be as weight efficient as possible process. That took quite a while. Uh, and then, uh, but I'll be burning eight to 10,000 a day. So I'll be in a high caloric deficit on a daily basis. And I think we're going to help you with your diet prepping. So you're eating your foods now, but we're going to make sure that we get you the best, like least inflammatory foods to the lead up awesome. yeah. to optimize you. So that's, that's exciting. Um, before we run out of time, though, I think this is also a point I really wanted to get across today. So this expedition is not free. It is not. <laughs> and it's actually quite expensive. It's quite expensive. So can you go into like, because what is it? Three quarters of a million dollars? $750,000. To like, to who are you paying? How does that work? Like, so there's a company called ALE, Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. They manage all ex uh, logistics for exped explorers and expeditioners out there. And so that cost is going into funding because normal Antarctic season is 85 days. 
They're extending the season just for me, 210 days, plus a two-week weather window to make sure you can fly out there in time. So for that extra time, you have to pay a doctor to be at the main base camp there, a pilot, a flight, a staff. You're like, are they the, watching you? They will be like a live tracker. I'll be checking okay. in with them. Uh, like last time I was in Antarctica, I got evacuated. A pilot came and got me. Um, you're also, I mean, the flight to Antarctica is $60,000. The flight from the base camp in Antarctica to the starting point of my expedition is to $200,000, $250,000. Because it's not just one flight. It's multiple flights that have to, like, I, it'll be a 12-hour flight with three fuel stops. You land in the middle of nowhere, Antarctica, to have a barrel of fuel yeah. to fill it up. So somebody's gone, like, and dropped those fuels barrels off, right? So it's this whole multiple thing. That flight is absurdly expensive. So it's a collection of the flights, the logistics, the staff. You're paying for the plane to get you all, all the way, all those kind of things. The sled is $11,000, the two custom-made sleds. So, but that that I've already self-funded. So, I, I mean, that's dropped over half a million dollars of my own money so far. I'm like all, all in. I'm losing fingers, mind, body, spirit, spending every dollar I have in this, but I do need support to so, fund this. Half, yeah. yeah um, so how do we support you? So I want to, I want to donate some. I've spoken Should to some other people who probably want to donate some. I wish I had the three quarters of a million to give you. I <laughs> so don't, but, like, like, um, <laughs> but how do we, so for people listening who are like excited about this and because I think you're also donating some charities and you're doing some. We will, we will, that's coming yeah. a little later. I also have my own nonprofit. The right, Fund. yes. All yeah, the yeah. profits in the book, I don't make a dollar off the book. We donate all of that to charity. Okay. Uh, so the Fear of book, that's... So Are you doing anything where people can donate, they get a copy of the book? Yes, there's different donation tiers. So some brilliant marketing friends of mine have created a whole crowdfunding campaign, which will be ready like within the next few days. Um, so we're going to actually push it because normally this episode wouldn't be coming out for like 10 weeks. So we're going to push it for you. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, to get it out as soon as possible. So um, you have a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, and there'll be like different donation tiers and okay. kind of like Indiegogo, you get different re yep. rewards kind of thing. Um, and yeah, just looking to get all the support we can to fund this. I mean, so far, I mean, people just yesterday, one dude just donated a $5,000 check. So, you know, because it's not just about me. We're telling a doc, we're going to film a documentary around right, it. Yep. We've gotten a ton of footage already, a documentary crew in Hollywood, like full on legit. Uh, we want to tell the story because, I mean, everything you're hearing from all this so far, it's like, I haven't, like, I wouldn't be able to have to share the things that I've shared without the life experience that got me there. Because I go to play so far out on the edge and I get to open doors into the human soul that aren't otherwise open. And to me, the way I earn this life, like I said, I believe I had debt to owe, is by bringing that wisdom back from the edge and sharing the treasures with everybody's battling their own version of a polar storm. Everybody has their own Antarctica to cross. But because I am blessed to go so far out and do these literally these things that are as extreme as one could do, I get to open new doors and I get to bring those treasures back. And that's really what we I think we can elevate human consciousness to new levels and really tap into something in the human soul and the human spirit that we all have. That's amazing. I was going to make a joke, but I don't know if that's if I can make a joke. <laughs> off that. So I'm going to make it anyways. It's like all I picture you is like a spider walking in the room and you get completely freaked out and run away. Like you have the stupidest, <laughs> like small fear. Uh, you're like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to the depths of Antarctica. Dude, I get more scared. My buddies were cracking up on like dating somebody. I would get more anxiety in my mess in my belly, like trying to message somebody on Bumble. And they're like, you do the most insane shit a human being could do. And, and you're fucking nervous. Like, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll help you through that one. That one we can work through. The point, it stresses the point. Like I don't, but I don't care when fear shows up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Be scared about whatever the fuck ever and just embrace it and, that's a perfect place. So, okay, before we end every episode, I like to give three takeaways because there's an hour and I know people can only absorb what they can. But first takeaway, I think, is what you just said. Embrace the fear and get comfortable with the fear. Um, the second one that I really liked was get silent and listen to yourself. And what would you say the third one is? 
I would say seek out a duality causing you friction. I'm happy to share. I'll share this with you. So let's use a different notes. word than duality. I know what duality means, but I feel some people might not. So search out something outside of you. Circa, seek out an edge that is beyond your current sense of reality and play on that edge. When you do, so let me do something this, that you're not doing right yeah, now. Yeah, but let me end it with this one line. I think this summarizes all the, the why, why this is all valuable is you're not your thoughts, you're not your feelings, you're not your experiences. You're the thinker of your thoughts, the feeler of your feelings, and the experiencer of the experiences. And when you start seeing that space by doing these things that we're saying, that's the essence of creating your reality the way you want to create it. I love it. Uh, if we want to find you, website, your Fear. Fearvana.com. F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A.com. Your Instagram. Fearvana. And soon we will have the crowdfunding page ready and all that as well. Okay, perfect. Uh, if anyone wants to find me, my Instagram is born, B-O-R-N underscore uh, underscore boxer, B-O-K-S-E-R. I want to thank everyone. I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you, uh, thank you everyone for listening. And I'm looking forward to joining you in future episodes. And I'd love to have you back on uh, either maybe, to. maybe we can do a live recording from the, no, I'm kidding, the satellite <laughs> while you're there. But uh, thank you guys again, and uh, we'll speak soon. Thank you again for joining us in Leaders in Sport. I'm your host, Jordan Boxer, and we just want to thank you from everyone at Designs for Sport for giving us your time and attention. We hope to continue to bring you episodes that will help pique your interest and help you elevate your career so we can elevate the industry. Thank you. Thank you.